Four years have passed since the doors first opened on Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Now, enter a new world that we lost and now have found again. More dinosaurs, more CGI, more gold bloom. Can the sequel outshine the original? It's The Lost World, colon, Jurassic Park. Welcome to Jurassic Pod, a podcast 65 million years in the making. In this show, we excavate, theorize, and decipher the evolution of Jurassic Park and its films. My name is Luke Ferris. I'm a writer and podcaster. And with me on this epic adventure is my dear friend, Michael Wynn. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, we, do have a, uh, we do have a little uh, dinosaur in studio uh, that is new to, to the show. Um, she's a, a little kitten, so if you hear kitten noises in the background, uh, it, it's our it's our new guest that is going to be making noises. We'll see if she makes any dinosaur no- noises. You, you might hear a roar or two. Um, Mike, how you doing? How you feeling about the Lost World? Are you glad you found it again? Yeah, yeah. It, I once was lost, but now I'm found. <laughs> 1997 is the Lost World, but we're not going to go alone on this journey, uh, Mike. We cannot do it um, because. As the movie is, there's two teams that go to the Lost World, so we gotta we gotta bring it someone from the West Coast, someone close to San Diego, um, since this movie is really all about <laughs> San Diego. In the end, he is our man in the West. He's a passionate music, entertainment, and culture connoisseur and an industry insider that is not affiliated. He is not affiliated with Universal Pictures. It's Greg Jackson from Los Angeles, California. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I um, you know, wa- watching the film very, very, very quickly, watching the film and, and like seeing San Diego be so threatened by yet another what one would call natural disaster is actually quite triggering because us Californians wake up every day knowing that a natural disaster could ruin all seventy degree weather that we have. <laughs> It does not matter. So to know that this is so close that that we now have to think about dinosaurs attacking uh, us, that's... It's scary. That, I mean, it's, it's triggering. I feel like it, if, if for California, a dinosaur is in the realm of possibilities at this point. At this point, they're like, it could happen. Yeah. A dinosaur could could attack. The state could break off into the ocean. You could not rule it out. a Tyrannosaurus wreck could rampage through Los Angeles. It, it's very, very uh, equal as far as possibilities. Everything's on the table. All right, Greg, we want to talk, uh, of course, Lost World, but we want to talk about your Jurassic Park experience. You touched on a little bit off air. Can you share your journey with Jurassic Park, maybe your background and how you've enjoyed the movies or not enjoyed the movies over the years yeah yeah well i will i will say that um i i was a a connoisseur of jurassic park 3 uh that came out in 2001 when i was i think maybe six or seven years old so that was what i focused on and i think i watched all of the other movies subsequent to that one as most six or seven year olds do most six or seven year olds do not sit around marathoning movies before they go to the movie theater yes saying hey mom we can't watch three before i watch one and two so, <laughs> yeah by all naturally of- like jurassic park three was 
was my like in 2001 that was it that that's what introduced me i had all my toys from jurassic park 3 i had this tyrannosaurus rex like toy um that um i believe it was jeff goldblum who was stuck in like uh he was stuck in an elevator shaft and in 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 three and you could um feed the elevator shaft to the t-rex toy and then at the bottom of the t-rex toy you could take the elevator shaft with Jeff Goldblum out. It was very strange, but I played with that <laughs> toy. Interesting childhood toys to play with. And feeding them I played with it an embarrassingly, embarrassingly number of, of times. Um, and that, that defined it for me. That was it. Like, I, I just, I love, I love dinosaurs. I loved three. And then I, I fell in love with one shortly after that. And then after one, I obviously had to watch Lost World. And I did watch that. And I appreciated it, just not as much as one or three. Yeah. Was what by the time you found out that one or two existed, uh, was six-year-old Greg indignant that there dare be a movie come before Jurassic Park three? I, you know, it, it wasn't. I was, I was excited, right? Like any kid, I was like, "Oh, you mean this isn't the only one?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. you mean like, like there's, whoa, there's yeah. two more before this? Yeah, I was like, wow, this is incredible. There's a whole world. And I just stumbled on like the end of the world <laughs> as opposed to everyone else who apparently knew that there was an entire world behind. That's great. Was you thrilled. didn't know. You had no idea. The characters knew. Everybody knew besides you. What an experience. Everyone knew besides for me. Everyone knew that there was an, I mean, it's like, it's like when you, when you stumble upon an artist on Spotify and on your discover weekly yeah and then you click on the click on the artist and see that they've had a like a 20 year career <laughs> that's great you're like holy crap there's there's albums and albums and albums of this and i've never heard of this guy before i've never heard of her before that is exactly how i felt that's such a good example. That's like, except uh, in this case, it would be like the end of their their music career, and really they're just phoning it in. Like you listen to their Christmas album, and then you are going back to see their Grammy hits. That's what it feels like with Jurassic yes. Park. But yeah, hey, exactly. we're this is a judgment free zone. We are on an exploration of the films. We haven't gotten to the third Jurassic Park, so we will not pass our judgments. We are focusing on the Lost World. Okay, Greg. Next, I'm gonna text you something. We are making our guests okay. do, do a little bit of work. This is our business portion of the podcast. And I've just texted you a little bit of business and you're going to have to read that. Um, so again, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to do some work. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, rate, and review the show so more Jurassic heads can discover us. Jurassic Pod is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Our logo was designed by Josie Till. You can learn more about her designs on Instagram at Josie Posey, P-O-S-I-E, underscore designs. You can get involved in the discussion on future episodes by contacting Luke directly via email at LukeHarris at gmail.com or on social media at Luke H. Ferris. You can also visit www.jurassicpod.com to listen, learn more, and get involved. No dinosaurs were harmed in the making of this podcast. Beautiful. Wow. One hit wonder. 
Beautiful. I, you know, I'm I usually not. He still he still got <laughs> it. It might be he still got it. It might be tied for the best guest read we've ever had. I, I think you're tied for first place for sure. Out of two guests. <laughs> I, I I don't want to give away the other guests, but I'm very interested who I am tied with. Yeah, well, well, Jeff Goldblum is on that list. Yeah, it was Jeff Goldblum <laughs> on the first episode, so you have that. You are tied with Jeff Being Goldblum. tied with Jeff Goldblum is, that is a feat within itself. That's all you need. Of anything. Yes, and talk about, speaking of Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, we have to get into the movie. Uh, before we um, dive into the, like, the plot points, we'll go through it kind of a, as, as the movie progresses and our thoughts on the movie. I want to talk about some kind of overarching things. Because this is the second film, because this was such a big movie that, that came out in 97, I want to talk about the differences between Jurassic Park and The Lost World. Um, we have the same director, Steven Spielberg. So this is four years after the first one, which, and Greg would know this being in the industry, that is a long time to wait for a sequel of uh, the biggest movie in the world. Four years that, that afterwards. Part of that was Spielberg had done Schindler's List right after tr the first Jurassic Park, and he took some time off, but also they were waiting for the technology to, to, to catch up. So that's kind of a unique thing. When you think about like big hits, they're made mm -hmm. usually within two years. Would you say that's correct, Greg? Yeah, I mean, the thing is the, the, the studio heads, the studio executives when watching a film usually know when it's produced or created by a big head like Steven Spielberg that there needs to be a sequel. So when it's in, when the first is in production, the second is usually greenlit. Yeah. And so once you roll out of the first production, then you roll right into pre-production for the next one, which usually does not take four years. So obviously they were probably working on the script, I'm guessing, and everything during that time, but they just weren't actually working on the actual production behind it within that time. But I, 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 I would anticipate that the script was done very shortly after, if not during the the first produ the production of the first film and i'm glad you brought up the the script uh we have uh the same writer david cope as who who wrote the first one with support from michael crichton who wrote the books um stan winston the animatronics guy um and industrial light magic of course with the cgi um i'm gonna give you some box office numbers we usually don't go this deep in the behind the scenes but i think it's important to frame the conversation we're having today so jurassic park uh this, again, this is at the time, so it's not adjusted for inflation. Um, the budget of the film was $63 million, estimated. Uh, opening weekend in the U.S. was $47 million. That was June 13th in 1993. Gross in the United States was just over $400 million, and worldwide was just over a billion. So that's the first one. Uh, the Lost World, budget $73 million, so uh, uh, that is 10 million. Wow, here we go, doing math. 10 million, why, why am I doing math? 10 million more uh, than <laughs> Jurassic Park as far as a budget. The U.S. opening weekend was 72 million. So 72, just over 72 million opening weekend compared to Jurassic Park, which was 47. So that's a big difference. And that was in May, May 25th of 97. And then the gross U.S. was just under 230 million. So less overall grossing, and the worldwide was six uh, six hundred eighteen um, million. So bigger opening weekend for the Lost World, 
less cumulative box office numbers in the end. Um, their Rotten Tomatoes scores, again, Rotten Tomatoes is aggregated historically, so take it for what, what it's worth. 91% for Jurassic Park and 53% for The Lost World. Mm. So that's what we're coming into, gentlemen. Thoughts on those numbers? I think uh, my first thought is I was very shocked to see the 53% for The Lost World. I think uh, because I think even though Greg may feel that the third movie is his favorite, um, I think consensus amongst the community of people who follow Jurassic Park really like the franchise, they would say that the, um, the Lost World is greater than a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but yeah, I was, I was very shocked to see that. Not shocked to see the Jurassic Park, the, the original, the first movie m- numbers. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely a shock to see such a disappointment at the time that The Lost World was. Yeah, yeah, especially the, obviously the opening weekend, huge, but that's pretty typical of the sequel. Right. And um, I think I have the number here that I saw. I watched a documentary. It was, it was by E, so again, not the greatest journalistic source. It was a promo doc in 97, uh, making of the, the Lost World. Um, but I have the number of what they spent in media promotions, which may comparatively might have some sort of analogy for this, Greg, modern, modern times. But there was a $250 million budget in promotions ahead of the movie. So this movie was a, a full-court press, huge sequel, one of the biggest movies of the summer. Um, so we were entering in really the peak of like what we know now is pretty typical for movie promotions pre-COVID. Um, but this was so the budget the big, for the movie was seventy three million, but the marketing budget was two hundred and fifty. Yeah, that's that's well. Incredible. And the thing is, is that um, as opposed to media, media has kind of is stagnated or has actually even gotten optimized for for what you spend on a film. So in the nineties, your media was going to billboards. Right, it was going to physical kind of things as opposed to in 2021, our media is going to Instagram ads, you know, and, and serving you Facebook ads and serving you um, uh, TikTok <laughs> ads as well and things like that, which are much cheaper than paying someone to paint a billboard exactly. across the company, across the country. Even now, like our billboards, I mean, for a movie, we typically only only advertised between new york and la so it makes a little bit it makes sense why the media dollars were that high on top of like paying for throw this word out for you guys magazine ads <laughs> right yeah in 1997 you're wow. paying for a lot you're, you're, you you want to be right in front and center you know on time magazine and and uh etc 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 um, or uh, ESPN the magazine or whatever it may be. So that's that's probably at the time. Different I mean, different. it's this is probably getting into the weeds of the of the of the marketing aspect a little bit. But at the time, that was as targeting your audience as you could oh, yeah. is by doing magazines. And nowadays, like Greg said, you can go online and you can find you can you can target people much easier because the data is more accessible. But back back then, you knew that if you wanted to reach if you wanted to market the Super Bowl, you just took an ad out in ESPN or Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting to think about that era and how much has changed. They did actually create a website for the Lost World. It was basically a, a, a glorified wiki page, um, 
which if you want to go to the Jurassic Park wiki, Jurassic wiki, it's uh, jurassicpark.fandom.com slash wiki slash Jurassic underscore park. Um, but basically that you can actually see the original screenshots of this website that was created. Um, also, this was the same time where they built the Universal Jurassic Park ride in, in Universal Studios. Okay. Would, that would be, I don't know. I'm looking at Mike because Mike is also one of... Uh, the, the I guess I don't even know if I could call you an amusement park expert, but you know more than me. I'm an amusement park nerd, but nerd. I'm no expert. But they did build an amusement park ride in the Universal Park, whatever you call. Do you it. know if it was L.A. or uh, you're, you're asking the wrong guy? But <laughs> it's ironic that they built a ride for Jurassic Park. Since the, I, the I will guarantee that they do not have room to build it in Hollywood at Universal Hollywood. That place is. Like probably as big as anyone's kitchen. I think they. I think they might have put it in Hollywood because I've been to Universal Hollywood and I believe it was there. They have a, yeah. There, there's a section of of the of I think the tours because in this doc they showed behind the scenes that has Jurassic Park stuff. But I think there was also a Florida ride. There was on ride, and then, but they also had a Jurassic Park section of the studio tour because some of 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 the movie was shot there. Um, Right. Great, great behind the scenes, gentlemen. I, I like it. We're bringing some real expertise here between between you two. I'm not coming to the table with expertise, but I did take notes. Okay, so overall, I, I really wanted to think about these things more so than maybe the first one. We kind of dove right into the to the plot. Um, but two questions I have for both of you, and we'll come back at the end. Uh, and, and really, it's about sequels. Where do you think the Lost World su- suffers from the disease known as sequelitis. And then the other question I want you to think about, is there a main uh, reason that this movie suffers? And is that because of its predecessor or other things? So if there's any reason this movie lacks in quality, is it because of something in the movie or is it because it's the second Jurassic Park movie? So just think about those things and we'll come back to those at the end of our time. All right, we're going to dive into the movie. You guys ready? We're going to strap on our, uh, our seatbelts and our Mercedes-Benz cars, and we're going to take this ride. You ready? I have a Prius. <laughs> this, is a Mer- this, po- this episode is only Mer- Mercedes-Benz. Um, Ford has been fired as the official vehicle of Jurassic Park Rescues. Yeah, and now we are doing Mer- only Mercedes-Benz. And I don't know if you, if you caught it, Greg, but there's a, a catabus in the uh, movie as well. A, a catabus? There's a catabus. Did you not? Did you see that? It's camouflaged. So I, I did not. Where where was it? <laughs> it's, it's featured very prominently in the movie. You know, remember the scene where where they're uh, they're they're like hanging by a rope and the bus like falls right through them. That's the bus. That's the catabus. You remember how the catabuses used to have? <laughs> that was a first model catabus. But the thing is, the thing is the, that that catabus itself actually, fun fact, it came from Lansing. <laughs> it was, it was, and and there are students waiting, waiting at Shaw, <laughs> saying, texting, saying, "Hey, I'm gonna be late for my class." <laughs> Jeff Goldblum got on this catabus, and they, I, we don't know where it went. Totally imagine that. imagine and, that and there are professors fun yeah. fact as well there are professors who are not excusing the absence of the folks <laughs> <No>. <laughs> on that button 
We got attacked by a T-Rex. What are we supposed to do? Sorry. My class, my rules. Uh. It's in the syllabus. It's in the syllabus. Okay, gentlemen, here we go. Uh, the Lost World, it opens up on the island of Isle... Isla Sorna. <laughs> yes, they Is do. It Site B. Norda you can just or... call it Site B. Site B. We open up on Site B. Um, there is a British family that have decided to have a fancy brunch on the beach. Um, unknown whether they waited for the tide to come in because... It's so rough. It's so rough when they're on the beach. Like, where... How'd they get there? I've been... That is my question. And quite honestly, it is... We're in 2021, and there are questions I no longer ask with movies made prior to 2012. But, like, why are y'all vacationing? (laughs) on a remote island like nothing is around like what 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 husband woke up one day and said hey family i I heard of this island 10 hours away (laughs) let me call up like let me call up my pilot friend and they and 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 we'll just set up a tent like what there's nothing. There's nothing behind it. So true. That that is why it is at a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That alone. <laughs> that, that alone. That, right that away, alone. Everyone, every, every critic walked out. Well, and if you think about it, it's really ballsy because technically, I think that's leased from the government of Costa Rica. So it's a private island that's being, or it's an island owned by the government that's being leased by a corporation. Like this. Right. Like, and it's interesting because the wife is kind of worried about the daughter, obviously, because she gets attacked by little dinosaurs. Um, but I, I imagine this whole scenario of, of the husband in the boat. No, it's fine, honey. No, it's totally fine. No, it's here. It's fine. But it says it's the it's owned by the Karistan government. Shouldn't we check with them? Oh, no, it's fine. No one's going to stop us. It, what, what's the worst that could happen? They come. They tell us to leave. There's so many, there's so many questions about this because not only do we have to answer the we don't have to answer it, but somebody needs to answer the question of how they got to that island given how rough it was. But – how the food got there and was plated so perfectly when they set it down at the table is so it's just mystifying. That catering team is unbelievable. They where where, where does the catering team live? How did they, how, it was a pretty big boat. Cute. I mean not big enough a boat for the full catering team. We're, I mean, to we're gonna like, need a bigger boat. We are gonna need a bigger boat for that. Unbelievable. <laughs> I want to what hang out with What do their facilities look like? For this, <laughs> like, how do they cook on site? It's true. I've never been able to cook anything that's worth eating in a in a boat kitchen, let alone something that's worth that that looks as good as what yeah, they cause, had. Yeah, because because conceivably they would have to prep on the boat. Yes, in the boat galley, which would not even in a big boat, it's not big. And then they had to had to bring the food to the beach, but there's no way that would have traveled well. No, it, no. No. They they need a raise. That's all I gotta say. Those guys need a raise. And 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 they need like hazard pay, given the <laughs> fact that there are carnivores on the island. Yeah. So the poor girl gets attacked um, by the first new dinosaur, um, whose name is it's it's I just call it a compy. A compy. Um, I tell you what, the compies uh, are the star of the show. They are in this movie 
a lot, maybe a little too much. Um, they really <laughs> like these dinosaurs. But uh, so right away we have an attack by a dinosaur. So a point about this dinosaur um, that maybe maybe you'll like it, it, that the compy in the movie is closer to the size of what scientists really believe the velociraptor is than how the movie to depicts velociraptors and i don't know if that is the produ the product the producers um like compensating for the fact that they got velociraptors so absolutely wrong and and jurassic park like the franchise will like admit this yeah it's a good point and it's interesting um and i and i do like the miniature raptors they were they were cute but they got a lot of airtime. they did that was my only <laughs> my only uh problem with that let's transition um to jeff goldblum riding a subway i would watch i could just watch him riding a subway all day i could just watch i could watch him walking around new york city um i i i could watch jeff i mean i would like to say i could watch jeff goldblum just doing things that other people regular people do all day long and that would be a great idea from a for a show but it it is a show. Oh, it is. It, Wait a minute. I, I will not allude to where you can find the show, but it is it's a fantastic show because it is Jeff Goldblum just exploring and doing normal people things, but he's Jeff Goldblum, which is phenomenal. It is so entertaining. The World According to Jeff Goldblum season two is out soon on a streaming service run by a mouse. This show is a little off the beaten track, and it may be unexpected and surprising. So, taste it and enjoy. Next, uh, <laughs> we have um, <laughs> we have our original main character, John Hammond, returns um, for kind of this opening scene. You mean main villain? Life find a way as you once so eloquently put it and by now we have a complete ecological system on the island with dozens of species living in their own social groups without fences without boundaries without constraining technology and for four years i've tried to keep it safe from human interference well uh, that's right that's right i mean hopefully we've kept this island quarantined uh and contained but i feel like this was almost like Steven Spielberg explaining the part of the movie to Jeff Goldblum because Jeff Goldblum kind of like is talking through it like, okay, okay, there's another island and um, okay, oh, oh, it's uh, someone got attacked. You're making, you're making all new ones. Uh, okay, so there's another island with dinosaurs, no fences this time, and you want to send people in, very few people on the ground, right? And who are these four lunatics that you're, you're trying to con into this? I feel like that's what was the same meeting between him and Steven Spielberg yeah. when it was pitched to him. <laughs> I, I, would, I would not be surprised if, if Jeff Goldblum needed the plot of Jurassic Park 1 explained to him again. <laughs> I would just not... You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah, just yeah. on brand. I feel like that was actually... So so what you're saying is we just watched actually a post-production meeting <laughs> yeah. of Jurassic Park 1, and they just they just said, that's good. We'll keep that for the we'll next one. Keep that for, for the next one. Um, we got to talk about um, Hammond. Uh, he So he's flipped the switch. He's all about preserving these animals, preserving them on the islands. That's his whole goal. Um, there is a deleted scene that talks about him and how he gets booted off as CEO. 
by his nephew. Um, they kind of talk about how he's like basically lost a bunch of money. Um, he's kind of turned into a naturalist. Um, what are your thoughts on John Hammond? Because even though he seems to have a good heart, but he still entraps Jeff Goldblum to do some dirty work uh, by sending his girlfriend to the island. What do you think about John Hammond? Is he still as evil as I think he is in the first one? Well, first and foremost, I going from capitalist to naturalist, was was that foreshadowing for Al Gore? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like it was subtle commentary of, of some of what was happening in politics at the time. Right. It was 1997. Yeah. That was it. Um, I... I... <laughs> It is, I mean, it's a hot, John Hammond was such an antagonist in the first film. I mean, and what he built was just so, like, disgustingly, like, human, right? It was, it was humans at our very worst, is that we can create our own demise, and that was what John Hammond represented. So, like, that, that is the lens and, and, and the light I'm always going to see him in regardless of how much good he tries to do, he very much so represents all of all of the negatives of humanity <laughs> in, in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I, Greg, I, I, think you, I think you bring up a really good point because even he goes from capitalist to naturalist, as Malcolm uh, points out, but what, what isn't addressed is the fact that he's still an idealist. And yeah. whether or not he's a capitalist, whether or not he's a naturalist, he's still an idealist. He thinks that um, that if he just sets up the situation to be perfect, that it'll somehow be perfect. And it's just very clearly not the case. So true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically the whole idea is that there is a team that's going to go to this second island um, and then there's that's that's commissioned by Hammond and they're going to basically Nat Geo the heck out of this thing <laughs> to preserve the islands. Um, so they're going to they're going to interact with the animals and take images of them to tell people to not interact with the animals and leave them alone. OK, sure. I, yeah. Uh, and then there's a bad group that's going to the island. That's how all set up. And then in the middle of it, you have Ian Malcolm. His girlfriend's already at the island, so he needs to go. It's not a research expedition anymore. It's a rescue operation, and it's leaving right now. Let's talk about Jeff Goldblum, his aesthetic overall. When he's in the shop with all the new gear, basically, like, there's a wide shot, and it's basically like, here's all the new toy line that's coming from this movie. <laughs> Um, he is looking sexier than ever. I mean, he, he's got the little stubble. Um, he's got like the, the tight polo. I mean, gosh, he looks good. Like he looks like he's been through some trauma and is going through work, but has also already completed all that work and is now the best version of himself since going through that. Yeah. Like he got a lot of crap for whatever happened in the meantime, but he's ready to go. Yeah. I, I always ask this question because I, I rarely know, are women, were women attracted to Jeff Goldblum? <laughs> in I, the feel like, I, I feel like they would have to be. And if, if you think about it, he's just coming off of Independence Day. Where, yeah. I mean, he is at the peak of his like global identity. 
But they they let him they shoot him beautifully. I mean, the lighting is good, everything's good, and he's looking fantastic. That's all I gotta say. And he's tall. Oh yeah, he's tall. That's that that's the thing. Oh, it's the height. He need, and he's leaning a lot to fit him in frame. Too, yeah, there's certain. Sexy. I mean, there, Greg, Greg, you're you're kind of right though because there are certain characters, certain actors who become these global sex symbols but are they actually sex symbols like 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 is anybody actually attracted to sean connery like or are they attracted the idea right exactly i think it's the opposite i don't think there's there's it's not necessarily like the characters that jeff goldblum plays it's his essence so it's almost it's almost in reverse see I i see but to be honest personally um as somebody who loves me some Goldblum, when I see him in a movie, I love him. When I see him on Kimmel or Conan, I'm like, that's too much. Uh, like you need to turn you. it down. How dare you? So I've I've had the fortune of actually seeing him in person. I saw oh, him perform. Oh, please his, tell. I saw him perform with his band um, at a at an event uh, a, a couple years ago here in L.A. and and he, I mean, he was on he was on the stage he was behind the piano and he 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 was sexy he was just because it's just his his aura and his charisma and his his just essence is just very like goldblumism to me is e- extraordinarily attractive like he's just a sexy sexy man however i have no idea what I have not asked my wife if she also thinks the same, and I would highly doubt that she does. I feel as though us people who grew up watching Jeff Goldblum in our movies, especially in like Jurassic Park, probably feel that he is a lot sexier than most women who probably are not rushing to watch Jurassic Park. That's probably true. I, I might be in like my own little world, my Goldblum world, but hey, it's safe in here. I'll tell you who's. I'll tell you who's not looking attractive. It's Vince Vaughn is in this movie. Uh, so a, a kind of a funny thing about this cast is this cast. Obviously, Goldblum height of his powers, uh, Spielberg height of his powers. But we have a couple actors who are on the precipice of of getting huge. So Vince Vaughn's one of them. Um, uh, Vince Vaughn had just done Swingers. He was kind of the hot thing. Spielberg actually like said that he was looking for like the next American icon and boy, was he wrong. Um, but, but ironically enough, him and Julianne Moore, who had done a decent amount, but was really growing in her prominence, were both going to start, um, in the reboot of, um, Hitchcock movie psycho the next year. So it's ironic that they're both in this movie together in the next in the next year they're going to be in that film which was pretty I think I don't I don't I don't necessarily think it's an amazing movie but it's definitely an important movie because it was a reboot a reboot of a Hitchcock. Also Richard Chief uh, of Toby from West Wing is in this um, before West Wing. So we have a couple actors that are kind of side characters that are right before they kind of hit big. Um, but basically that I just named a couple like the good guys, the good team, the environmentalists, and they're going to the Island to save, uh, Julianne Moore and, um, take photos. Um, so let's talk about Jeff Goldblum's daughter. Um, I believe in the first movie he said he has multiple kids. So we don't know if this is 
one of four or five, um, but this is his three. And this is his daughter, um, who's kind of, they set it up that they've been living together. Uh, I told Mike that I would really like to see a Ian Malcolm sitcom of, of, of him and his daughter. In, in trying to balance all the trying families. Trying to balance going to gymnastics practice, kind of like, obviously there's a lot of Being baggage. a cutting edge researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Like they talked about being in Austin doing research and she was along there. I think there, I actually really love this uh, actress and I think it's a really kind of fun way to show Ian Malcolm because in the first one that he obviously has a connection with the kids but this one they really kind of lean into it what were your guys' thoughts on her as a performer but also as a character I liked her I thought I mean as far as uh it can be really hit or miss when you have a young a young kid in, in a movie um especially when there's some star power surrounding them um and uh there I mean I thought the kids in the Jurassic in, in the first movie were were as good as you could reasonably expect but i thought that she you know outperform if we're ranking the kid performances in this franchise thus far through two movies she has she's got the best performance yeah i i i completely agree um she was great i think she was a great performer but i also thought that just her storyline was was really enticing um and the and the fact that she was just like as a child, I would not want to go to this island after, and I don't know if, if, if Jeff ever, or if Ian ever explained what happened on this island to said child, but if I heard those stories or saw his trauma, which I'm sure he has PTSD from, I would not want to go to that island. No. She was adamant about it, which you know, to me is, is it, it, it just, I, I guess it just kind of like reflects to like what kind of child he was raising, which is one who's just obviously very stubborn, but also more than likely just, she's an adventure seeker, like her, like her father. She, yeah. she a lot of, a lot of important traits like her dad that were reflected in her. So I think it humanized Ian in a, a lot of different ways because it, 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 it showed that obviously he's, he has a relationship with his girl to the to the extent that she's starting to reflect and starting to mirror, you know, a lot of his personality traits, which is which is great. Why can't I stay with Sarah? Uh, because Sarah is out of town. Karen's fantastic, though. She said she'd take a horseback ride to the movies. You're gonna have a fantastic time. Stop saying fantastic. Where are you going anyway? Uh, it's only for a few days, but I wouldn't be going if it wasn't if it wasn't uh, really important. I'm your daughter all the time, you know. You can't just abandon me whenever opportunity knocks. That hurts my feelings. Do you want to tell you to say that? Dr. Malcolm downstairs, please. Uh, you know, sweetie, I know we've had some hard going, but I feel like in the last couple of years we've really kind of started to work things out. It hasn't been better. Yeah, but I want you to crack on me a little bit, ground me or something, send me to my room. You never do any of that stuff. Well, why would I? Because it turned out to be so uh, beautiful and brilliant powerful and funny and generous the queen goddess my inspiration dr malcolm i could come with you i could be a researcher still like i was in austin and and i thought about this at the time but i had never i never thought about this scene this before she's she's go, she's ping-ponging around the this platform that they're talking on and he is chasing her throughout trying to talk to her and it's just it's this characterization this very subtle spielberg character development that she it, it, not not a total disregard for authority but she is 
um, she, she's not going to ask for permission before no. she does something. She's just going to go. And, and I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a great character. And I think it also kind of sets up what we talked about at the beginning of, of the show, Greg, when you talked about the age you first watched Jurassic Park as a viewer of that demographic, which let's be honest, this film is for that demographic, the 11, 10, 12 year olds. She kind of is who you were in the movie it would be like oh what, what would i do in that in that instance but i think it's both a great summation of of her character and boy is she confident because she uh jumps into the bus and apparently is on there for three days eating candy and no one sees her so well done well done as, as any normal child can survive off of candy <laughs> candy that makes a lot of sense yes yep. also they brought a lot of candy so that's a lot of that, candy that's good um <laughs> We're, let's get to the island. Um, before we get on the island, um, we have to talk about a plot point that will come back continuously throughout the entire movie. I don't know if you picked up on this, Greg. Tipo de cuentos. Los de pescadores. Que se sacaron demasiado las islas y nunca volvieron. See, 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 he's heard stories of fishermen that came too close to the island and then never returned. Tengo la radio, tengo el teléfono satélite. He has the radio, he has the satellite phone. When you need him, send the call and he'll be here in two hours. But he will not stay here. He won't stay anywhere near these islands. They call the islands Las Cinco Muertes. What does that mean? Five deaths. Apparently, no other characters understand what Cinco is in Muertes. They can't figure out that that means like the five dead islands. Um, but anyways, the frequency at which they connect with the captain of this boat will come up again and again and again. And I, I would argue is Jeff Goldblum's main motivation is to get the right frequency for the radio. Yeah. So just, just pay attention. Um, our, our folks get on the island, our good team, they find Julianne Moore. Um, we see our another new dinosaur, the Stegosaurus, which apparently a bunch of kids rode in to uh, Steven Spielberg's office because they were upset the Stegosaurus was not in the first movie. So that makes an appearance. Jeff Goldblum says his iconic running and screaming line, which was in every single trailer and every single promo of the movie. This is, this is magnificent. Oh, yeah. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Greg, we wanted to bring up something. I don't know if you saw this. At 23 minutes, uh, Julianne Moore first realizes that this team is coming to rescue her, um, and they cut to Jeff Goldblum. He is gently resting his hands in his pants at 23 minutes. Um, it could be he was trying to tuck in his shirt, uh, which he's committed to looking good. It could just be, you know, just resting, you know, just rest your hand. In I your have pants. pockets, but it's better here. But it's better here. Or it could just be, and just he's just kind of feeling awkward because of seeing his girlfriend. Um, I don't know if you noticed that. I did not notice it, and I am upset that you have brought this to my attention because I will need to rewatch. <laughs> Because I, I can't even speak to it, and it is 2021. <laughs> I have no idea what is going on. So but just, now that you've said that. Just bookmark it. It's 23 minutes. 
23 the, minutes. Yeah. My prediction is this is the first time where we're seeing a lot of heavy CGI. Um, this was a big movie where in the first film, the CGI was definitely used, but this is where the CGI is interacting with the characters. Um, it's the classic behind the scenes shot where you have the actors looking off into the distance and then uh, either a PA or director saying, now you're scared. Now go left, go right. I'm assuming they were this, whatever this scene was, they were taking a lot of takes and Jeff Goldblum just kind of like, I'm so bored. And he just kind of, you know, was just adjusting his, his, uh, you know, his shirt and just, and then decided to just leave his hand in his pants. I, you know what you're, you're, I'm hoping that that is it again. Having, I, I cannot imagine directing Jeff Goldblum. I cannot imagine <laughs> yeah. Jeff Goldblum. I'm sure there are a lot of other things that he did with, that were just far out of this world. And maybe they are, were edited into the film and maybe they were edited out of the film, but it's Jeff Goldblum, I guys. think we got a Goldblumism that snuck into the final, final cut that they couldn't cut out. <laughs> All right, so uh, moving on, um, our crew realizes there's another crew on the island. Uh, this bad crew is led by a slew of characters and character actors. Obviously, I mentioned the nephew. Um, John Hammond's nephew has taken over the company. He's basically leading this whole entire scheme to, to basically take the dinosaurs from the island and bring them to uh, the mainland. Um, but he's got a slew of, of, of characters with him. He's got mainly hunters. They has, he has a scientist. Um, the main hunter guy, which I'm going to pull up his, the actor's name, uh, which is Pete uh, Postlewaite um, as Roland. Uh, he's a great character, uh, just the hunter guy. I remember loving him as, as a character growing up. But our good guys notice that these guys are here. I want to bring up something that w- stood out to me. Obviously, they're taking photographs of the dinosaurs. That's the whole reason they're here. And then um, Vince Vaughn's character brings out his handheld camcorder. And for some reason, he thinks that his handheld 97 camcorder is able to, to have enough zoom to zoom in and get quality footage of, uh, of the dinosaurs that are moving at high rates of speed. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Radio Shack clearly had a hand in, in getting some product placement. He's supposed to be a professional photographer, and he pulls out this handheld, like, looking like a dad on, on a kid's birthday. Like, he, it's, think about the sh- how shaky that would be. It would just be like, no, I got it, guys. I got it. I, Mike, I appreciate any and all 90s retail references. <laughs> I really, really do appreciate that. Uh, uh so we have a great scene where the bad guys are all in their Hummers and Jeeps chasing all the dinosaurs. It's supposed to be traumatic, but it's also exciting. Very much, they're the bad guys. They're coming in. They're, they're, they're attacking these they're, dinosaurs. They're poaching. They're poaching, basically. Um, and I think that's, uh, it really sets up the dynamic between these two camps and, and what their motivations are. Um, any thoughts on that chase scene? Because a lot happens, um, and there's a lot of shooting and weird contraptions coming out of the jeeps. Yeah, I, I, I think when I was a a kid, it was just very exciting. I I owned several of the toys, 
um, you know, I had a Jeep that had a, or a hum a Humvee or whatever that had a, a seat that would slide out of it or, yeah. you know, a net that was cast from it. And, you know, it wasn't really something that as a child I saw as evil. But in this context, it is evil. These are the bad guys. But we find out, which I think is ironic, we find out that Roland, he's only there for, for the T-Rex. He is a, he's a gentleman hunter. Peter, if you want me to run your little camping trip, there are two conditions. Firstly, I'm in charge, and when I'm not around, Dieter is. All you need to do is sign the checks, tell us we're doing a good job, and open your case of scotch when we have a good day. Second condition, my fee. You can keep it. All I want in exchange for my services is the right to hunt one of the Tyrannosaurs. A male, a buck only. How and why are my business? Now, if you don't like either of those two conditions, you're on your own. So go ahead, set up base camp right here, or in a swamp, or in the middle of a wreck's nest, for all I care. But I've been on too many safaris with rich dentists to listen to any more suicidal ideas. Okay. Okay. There's a deleted scene that sets up his entire character and his and his friend that I think you kind of miss the context of what this guy's all about. I just find it interesting that this guy has like a moral code as <laughs> as he's hunting a Tyrannosaurus Rex. He's killed everything. Genetically engineered, <laughs> but he has a moral code. Is uh, yep. okay. He's killed everything on the planet. Yeah, he has like a line. I won't right. cross. I've killed everything. I've broken laws. It's not even that he's just killed everything on the planet, but like he's killed everything on the planet and he is now to the point where he needs to kill prehistoric things, but he has a line. But he, he has, has a, a line, line and he will not cross it. Uh, we do see a new dinosaur, the one with the helmet. Um, <laughs> it's like it's like Richard Hammond invented dinosaurs, and this man was offended that something else was living that had not been killed yeah, by him. He's like, "You gotta be kidding me!" He's like, uh, "I guess I'm gonna oh, have to kill all another here. beast." Uh, Vince Vaughn tries to live stream uh, the whole event um, with his little satellite. Um, where was that when they needed it? Um, the bad guy uh, who is the now the head of the head of the company. Um, he makes an interesting analogy. Um, once, once we get all this chasing done, they're at camp. He's doing a virtual board meeting, which I thought was pretty um, ahead of its time to do a virtual board meeting. San Diego is the perfect set. People already associate our beautiful city with animal attractions. San Diego Zoo, SeaWorld, San Diego Chargers. When he mentioned SeaWorld, and we think about the documentary Blackfish and the idea that you're bringing these huge killer whales into basically a swimming pool i just thought it was ironic that they kind of reference your world and the whole point of this movie is bringing animals to the mainland to serve them up as entertainment all right um i i think that makes like the business point like a lot more sound like SeaWorld already exists so why don't we take these prehistoric animals and also take them completely out of their element and put them way too close to humanity that makes a lot of sense right guys it's totally in line yeah SeaWorld's done it why can't we do it it's the next logical progression you know that's that that is that is the reason why like moral decay is a thing because it's the moment you start crossing that line, then there's just, there's, there's the logic just follows it. <laughs> there's no way back. There's no way back. Uh, lines will can be continued to be crossed when um, Vince Vaughn, who apparently is a 
some sort of activist who knows how to use pliers um, starts to attack the camp and causes havoc. The dinosaurs get loose as they should. Um, we cut back to our heroes um, who have done something very, very stupid. Um, uh, Roland has created a trap with the baby T-Rex um, and he's hunting the T-Rex. And as the chaos is happening, uh, a car flies into the tree, another car in tree for Jurassic Park. Uh, that's the second time we've seen one it's of those. It's a big, th- big theme in the movie. <laughs> it's a big theme in the movie. And then uh, Vince Vaughn does the dumbest thing you could possibly do, and he steals the baby T-Rex. So what was going through Vince Vaughn's head as he was stealing the baby T-Rex? I'm the next American icon. <laughs> I am... It. I I am I I think the issue with the film is is going to continue to be like what like what what have we learned from the first film right and I think it is it it it, it is so relevant because it the entire trilogy continues to be a critique on humanity why would you steal a baby T-Rex would you steal a baby bear no one would ever steal a baby bear because they know exactly what happens if you take a baby bear, a cub, away from its mother. Yeah. So, it, it and, just and apparently these are scientists too, which is ironic. Yeah. It, well, I think the the issue I will go that I'll point out is what if he had just left it there? Like, sure, it would have died, but um, but he would not have died now he ends up surviving but like his chances of survival if i'm not i'm no actuary but i am assuming <laughs> that mathematically speaking his chances of survival plummeted yeah after well, he touched it, that dinosaur it killed uh I, paul paul schaefer he died uh tragically so excited. vince vaughn has blood on his hands he does but it does bring up the whole moral point and we talk about these movies and why and this whole journey is talking about these movies and why they are culturally relevant even though there's no superheroes or there's no really main big super character, um, it's these questions of in Vince, Vince Vance's character's head, he's trying to do good, but he ad- ends up causing a lot more chaos when he puts himself, involves himself with nature. Um, so they bring back the baby dinosaur. Jeff Goldblum is on tech support trying to get the frequency. Uh, he is trying to speak Spanish. Uh. Um, he's really trying to get get that call in. So the boat. I, I point, I, I said while we were watching the movie, I don't think that that was acting. I think Spielberg said to Jeff Goldblum, I just want you to try and use that radio. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is just they're just like in action and he's like I cannot still looking for the uh, frequency what uh, frequency I'm sorry ma'am uh, as we talked about mommy's very angry we have two T-Rexes for the sequel that come the mom and the dad Assuming it's a mom and a dad. We don't know. Um, are coming for our heroes. Actually, we actually we do know. It's two females. It's two moms. It has to be because they were bred as females. 
You're right. It's two moms. Initially, whatever it was, it was two moms. Now they do talk about. Point. They talk about in the first movie that they used frog DNA, a specific frog DNA, and the specific frog DNA they used has been known to change genders when needed. So it could have been a mom and a dad, but they were breeded as, as females. As females in the beginning. But I mean, double trouble. It's it's going to be intense. Um, our heroes are tragically are, are, are stranded on the cliff um, due to the horrible, horrible decision to set up their camp on the side of a cliff. Well, you had the you you had the uh, the nephew of Inge, the the guy that was running Ninja, and he wanted to set up base camp on a game trail. <laughs> yeah. And now these guys they want to set up base camp. Here's good. Cliff. This cliff. This cliff seems like a very safe spot <laughs> for a monsoon to come. If you've watched any um, Running Wild with Bear Grylls, which is also on a streaming service uh, that has an icon of a mouse, um, you set your camp. Not next to shore. You have to go at a high ground into the cover of the trees for safety. Um, Bear Grylls taught me that, and they did not obviously have Bear Grylls with them. Um, a great, great action scene. Though That whole sequence is super exciting. The saddest part is, honestly, is uh, uh, Toby from the West Wing really giving his all, trying to strap the, the car to the trailer, the rope to the tree, He's giving it his best, um, and it does not work out. And he tragically is killed, but heroically continues to put his foot on the gas as the T-Rex are, are, are attacking him. I mean, what a, what a hero. Kelly, what'd you do with Kelly? She's okay, she's in the high hide. Who's hurt? What do you need? We need rope. Rope? What, oh, anything else? Yeah, three double cheeseburgers with everything. No onions on mine. He he really saves the, the three of them, um, and it's hard. It's hard even even if you try to look at it from an artistic standpoint. It's hard to say that um, that that character that that storyline was complete because it just doesn't seem right to say. And it just doesn't seem right to say his storyline was complete. He saved the lives of three others. It just didn't seem. It wasn't the same thing as uh, in the first movie when the lawyer gets killed. Yeah, because the lawyer set up is kind of a bad guy, but. Uh, not Richard Schiff, Eddie Carr is the character's name. He, his character was odd to us, Greg, because he's kind of quirky and he's got that like New York accent. And it's kind of he's not really an asshole, but he's kind of set up as. But you're, he's actually more lovable, and it's ironic that they killed him off. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no like redemption to like his arc, right? Like in in the first one, you had the lawyer who who was an antagonist and then gave up his life. But in this situation, it's just sad. It's just a guy who, he, he wasn't awful. I mean, he was just a normal New Yorker. And granted, <laughs> I have, I've, I've, I've talked about this many a times with my New York colleagues recently. New Yorkers are kind. No, 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 they're not kind, but they're nice. That's it. Yeah, they're not they're kind, not but they're nice. They're good people. They're just not friendly basically is what it is and that kind of describes him so it, yeah it's just it's unfulfilling to me to have someone die off and yeah and sacrifice himself for his friends when why does it have to be him yeah you know? and and he's trying so hard and I, I i really think this movie obviously a lot of the scenes are dark it's a darker movie 
I almost equate this. This is more of a, a, a thriller slasher almost, um, kind of a movie the way it's shot. Um, much more of a horror aspect than an adventure film. Obviously, the first one, some pretty intense scenes, especially with the raptors, but um, definitely a, a dark movie. Um, our crews are combined. Um, all radio, any kind of frequencies are not able to be used. Our teams, our two teams need to go to, an, a, I guess, a, an outpost that has a radio. And so they're, they're going to go together. So we have bad guys, good guys together. Frequency. <laughs> they're trying to find the right frequency. As they're leaving, um, Jeff Goldblum does subtly mention that, do we have the frequency? We can get here. We can send a radio call for the other. Frequency written down somewhere? Right here in this book. Do you think that it's possible that as they're shooting this movie, they may have, like Jeff Goldblum doesn't actually believe that he's shooting a movie. He's actually fighting for survival, and he's he's actually he's, like, Do we have the right he's been trying to reach Spielberg the whole time, and he's I just got, looking for the frequency. Reach, I've got to reach Steven. I've 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 got to talk to Steven. I've got to talk. That to is that is a significantly better theory than I had. My theory was that like. He he just he doesn't like the script and he's just trying to ad lib, and <laughs> at the end of the day, Steven Spielberg is like, "This is actually a good line. I'll keep it in." But this is, this is fantastic. Yes, yes, I am with you. I am with you on the Jeff Goldblum does not actually know that he's shooting a movie <laughs> theory here. I am totally on that conspiracy train. <laughs> like he like he like in the first movie he. He really didn't think that he was shooting a movie either. Like he was actually trying to get away from dinosaurs. And then the second movie, he somehow ends up in the same situation. It's like, how did this happen again? <laughs> again. Uh, if you want to get that uh, subtle frequency uh, line, it's at the 108 mark, I believe. Um, another line that I missed is as they're climbing up the rope, um, Jeff Goldblum did, does say <laughs> this line. <laughs> These are not written. No. <laughs> because 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 guys, this is this is by David Kep. And I've I've watched a few of his films. He's known for um Spider-Man, the yes. the the 2002 Spider-Man. He he did not write like that. In no. the, he did not write lines like that. These are Jeff Goldblum lines. These are these are lines that Jeff Goldblum probably just says to his family. Exactly. Like normally, this is how he talks to his his children. He tells them to increase. <laughs> so in Spider Man, he wasn't saying increase your rate of slang. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it, it's unbelievable. Um, he also says uh, he mentions like a couple of Marbo Marlboro men. Yeah. Um, referencing all the the kind of the posse that the bad guys have. Um, so uh, we're. Walking down the path, um, our little guys come back to uh, have the second instance of death while attempting or near a toilet um, in Jurassic Park. The lawyer is killed on the toilet in the first one. Um, this uh, this expendable crewman is killed while he's trying to go to the bathroom, and his lookout does not listen to him because he's playing his music. Um, really, really tough. Really, really tough. A, a, a much less satisfactory toilet death, I will have to admit. <laughs> the first toilet death. They really the draw it out. Because the first one was what? It was uh, he was in the porta potty, right? Yeah. And then the porta potty got eaten, didn't it? 
Yeah, was, yeah. The porta potty is pushed away, and the mouth goes right directly on the lawyer on the toilet. Yeah, on the toilet. Yeah, that was fantastic. That, you, that so much more sad. When you gotta go, you gotta go. I will say though that um, the person who ended up dying equally satisfying because I did not like that guy. Yeah, he was so annoying. He was kind of weird. He was kind of like third in the chain of the command. Um, he got in trouble because he was on guard when Vince Vaughn sabotages the crew. Um, but he's also a jerk because he has the the line with the bad guy scientist says the dinosaurs have nothing to fear because they've only been on this island together. They've never they've never seen a man. And then he zaps the little guy and. The key says, well, now they have something to fear, which is, if you say that in a movie, here's a pro tip. Don't say something like that in a movie where there's monsters. You will die. You will <laughs> absolutely die. Yeah, that, that happens a lot. It, it, it does. They, they can't help themselves. I want to talk about how Jeff Goldblum got into the um, like the chain of command. Um, they're at camp, and Jeff is like, they're like talking with the with the main hunter guy and like how did how did you get into like the decision making crew we don't know i guess his charisma of of just himself but he's he's making the decisions i would i mean i would i would imagine again that 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 was not written in the script that <laughs> Jeff that, that scene out. was actually just two other guys but yeah there was yeah it was the roland and rj or aj or whatever it was and they're like okay we're gonna shoot this scene you guys are gonna talk about your tactics to get through the rest of the park or through the rest of the island and then like goldblum just appears. jeff come over here we got to talk about something and then jeff like, wouldn't oh, come. i think i need to be no, in this I, scene yeah i think i'm in the scene <laughs> what is what well so mike what is what is ian's what is his actual like uh like what is his function? What or what is his industry? So in the first movie, or he's discipline. a yeah. He's I mean he's he's a academic. He's a professor of mathematics at I think the okay. University of Texas Austin. I think that's how it's written. Um, and then I think he's he loses his tenure, and he is and he's fired from the university because um, he violated the non disclosure agreement that he had signed with InGen before they went to the island to begin with um so ingen ingen was like disavowing his actions and he kept saying no this really happened and then they were like and so so the university tried to save themselves from controversy yeah which we we did gloss over a little bit at the start i think we were distracted by jeff goldblum riding a subway mm -hmm. but that was probably to indicate that he has lost his job but something that we talked about in the first episode greg you weren't here for this but um is that there's a point in the movie in the first in the first movie where you get a glimpse that that Ian was was uh, made aware early on what Hammond was trying to do in in the construction and the development of Jurassic Park where he he says uh, you know the guy did it or something like he says something like that when he sees the first dinosaurs he's like that you know that guy finally did it or something so he knew and was and was and had a pre-established relationship with Hammond, with InGen, on either being an advisor or an investor or, or something um, where he, you know, he had inside knowledge on this stuff. Interesting, because that's, I mean, it, 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 there's complexities to Ian's character that I'm just starting to like, after watching this movie, I'm starting to think about. But first and foremost, 
for a guy to lose tenure over controversy is actually like not that realistic. That's one of the least realistic parts of this movie, to be honest with you. I mean, it may be more, it may be less realistic than the actual dinosaurs being created. That is so uh, true. But on top of that, I did not know that I, I, I did not know that he had knowledge. Before, did they ever allude to in any of the movie or, or any of the movies to how he got knowledge of the creation of these? No, not that I'm aware. It's of. more implied, I feel like. Yeah. But I think it's it's yeah. one of the things like. I'll, I do say that this this whole franchise doesn't doesn't really have a main character, but I I'm pretty adamant, and maybe once we get down the line that Ian Malcolm is the main human character in this movie. And there's so yeah. much more to that character that you they touch on it a little bit in this movie, but in this movie he's really just kind of like, I'm the audience. I've done I've seen this before. Everyone like don't do this. Like he's not necessarily using his like intelligence as much as he is in the first movie. The first movie, and we talked about in the first episode, every line he Ian Malcolm has is like a zinger. Like it is like super insightful. This movie. A little bit less of that, and I think that's the one thing about this movie from his character is, is it's it's less that kind of insightful, confident. But I guess that's it's true to the idea that he has trauma and he has real fear. Like he yeah. doesn't care about his academic research or being smart. He's trying to save his his family, and that's what I and I, and I guess I'm being schooled by Jeff Goldblum because that's what he came what came across. What a poignant message. Good good work, Jeff. Good work. All right, we are on to kind of the final big, big sequence. Um, this movie really is like every 10 minutes there's an action sequence. Um, as soon as people like rest, it's back at it. Um, the T-Rexes are attacking uh, the group as they rest during the night. Um, the, the ladies are in their own InGen tent. Um, InGen really trying to diversify by making tents. Watch out, Coleman. Um, they are eating Hershey's Crackle. Hershey's Crackle. Really, really. Great great candy bar. Um, it's often the candy bar that I will go to um, when uh, there is nothing else around. Like I only ever see it in the same bowl as like the small Hershey bars. Hershey with almonds and like packs, the good the bar. Packs. Like it's, yeah. You don't see the whole bar. Like I've never seen movie. a whole Crackle bar. <laughs> well, I'm looking it up right now. I, they, in in every in every picture I'm seeing on Google, they're only the small ones. They yeah. don't even come in like normal size, and I agree with you, Mike. I've never seen them outside of like the pack of other Hershey's candies that you get. I also will say this: I rarely ever see them outside of the month of October. <laughs> at all have you ever have do you not have a, i know it's covid but do you not have co-workers who have candy bowls on their desks because the, they often populate in those areas oh you know what they do they do they're good they're actually very good yeah. they they i think they're like supposed to uh they're probably supposed to compete with kit kat but they don't do it that well well a crunch bar me. really or a crunch bar you're right yeah 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 yeah, I'd much more prefer a crunch bar. My theory is after The Lost World came out, everyone realized that T-Rexes are attracted to Hershey's Crackle, <laughs> and it is a danger to have the full bars in your household. <laughs> so really backfired on Hershey for that product placement. Um, 
again, the T-Rexes attack the camp. Everyone runs wild. Jeff Goldblum says, no one move. Everyone moves. It's pretty funny. Um, There's a lot of humor in these action sequences. Um, Most of the crew runs for a waterfall. Um, The hairy scientist with the beard is eaten, unfortunately, because a snake goes down his back. Um, Ironic that a small reptile ends up killing him by pushing him into a big reptile. It's a little It's bad. like teamwork. You know there was like a little high five that was fun between. It was a tail five. A yeah, tail a and tail tiny five. arm five. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when the group is still being chased, is led into the uh, the long grass. Um, this <laughs> line, don't go into the long grass. My brother and I love that line. Anytime me and my brother were anywhere near grass that was above our our ankles, my brother would scream, don't go into the long grass. <laughs> don't go into the long grass! <laughs> Not into the long grass! <laughs> uh, but it is a great little sequence of the raptors kind of hunting their prey. Very, very much reminiscent of Jaws where you can't see the creature and the creature is stalking uh, the expendable crewmen, uh, and they are all scared, and and they are devoured very very quickly. Um, I, 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 I just I think that the the raptors have been the best part of Jurassic Park, bar none to me. Just it is incredible to me that like Steven Spielberg has like essentially create, I mean, he essentially created a character through these raptors that continue to be antagonists that continue to like serve as, as, as just like these dangerous threats to be avoided, but also like, like they just, they, they, they have, they almost have their own character development. Yeah. Too, yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, they're, it, and they're brought in at rain. Like you don't, you know, they're always, possibly there but you don't yeah. know when so they oh, made yeah. the the they made a mention about this because because one of the questions is why are they so why are they hunting everything in the first movie but they're not hunting anything in the second movie nobody's getting de- nobody's getting killed by raptors that are hunting and it sounds like the 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 ingen team the the bad guy team had done some thermal imaging Yes. And they said, we, we're staying away from this area, the long grass area. And don't, don't, someone said very subtly, yeah, don't go in that long grass. <laughs> I, I imagine uh, RJ or AJ, whatever his name is, there was a pre-meeting before they left and, uh, and they're showing the thermal scannings. And he's like, all right, guys, so don't go in that long grass. Um, it doesn't matter what you're, what's happening. Just don't go in that long grass. That's our only rule. Okay. So don't go in that long grass as they were flying the helicopters. All right, guys, everyone buckled in. Remember, don't go into the long grass. And that is why when they do go in the long grass, he is losing it and screams, don't go in the long grass. How many times does he have? But to then fall? he runs into the long grass. Yes, he runs into the long grass. He drops his backpack, which is the most important part of the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, he drops his backpack Later, Vince Vaughn finds the backpack, and guess what's in the backpack? The frequency. The frequencies for the bad guys to get out. And wow, 
another another sacrifice for the greater good. Um, yeah, but I don't know why he went into the long grass. Can we can we just go back to the long grass very very quickly because always, I always I'm as long as I don't never, go in it. Yeah, don't go I, in it, Greg. Don't go in it. We'll go back to it. And yeah. I would I would like to critique that statement for a second because if you were in a jungle of any sort, you do not go into long grass like ever. Like you do not go into grass that is as tall as you. I learned that from Pokemon. <laughs> Thank you. That, yes, yes, I learned it from Pokemon too. Thank you. Yes, yes, absolutely. You, you, you have no idea what kind of Pokemon you're going to run into if you run into the thick crap. Yes, absolutely. That is not a lesson that you need to learn as a 30-year-old, 40-year-old scientist. That is something that I learned when I was a child. Like, no, you have no idea what kind of creatures, whether they may be, you know, um, uh, velociraptors or Charizard. Yeah. <laughs> both, both equally deadly. Uh, equally. Uh, the long grass. Both are dinosaurs. I think if we ever have merch for this, uh, we just need to have like a t-shirt that just is like really clean, like block leather lettering that says, don't go in the long grass. And yeah. that should just be the merch. Uh, oh man, if gosh. we ever had merch... I you're, you're going to get if we get merch Greg you will get a shirt delivered to you directly. You know, but I could see that going in a different direction. I I just have a a feeling that someone will take don't go into the long grass and then add some kind of um uh, uh innuendo. I, I think <laughs> I think that I think that we should double down on what Greg's saying. We should make them all innuendos by making all of the merch just Goldblum quotes. Yes, yes. <laughs> People are going to think it's innuendo in a way. Why not just increase, make it innuendo? Increase rate of climbing. <laughs> <laughs> just a rope. Uh, do you have the frequency? <laughs> do you have the frequency? Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of the island sequences. We get to the um, kind of the, the, the center with the communications. Mike, you made an interesting point while we were watching the film. Um, it seems like in the past four years, <laughs> this facility has really gone. Like I know that I has really lost its luster. I know the tropics can be really harsh. Okay, so that's why like the broken glass, the you know the the moss, all of that makes sense. But the the when Vince Vaughn gets to the control area, which is on the second floor in a back room of this place. I mean, it is just covered, like Tarzan himself just decided to do all of the decorating and it's just covered in vines. It's been four years. Uh, It really has, I mean, the dinosaurs have really moved in. I mean, I feel like that's where the raptors are. That's like their home. Like it's the long grass is like their yard. And then they they spend their evenings in that facility. Well, and I think they go back to that building in the third movie, I believe. Okay. Or a building like that. A similar building. I maybe I have a different perspective on it, but I I don't think it's that far fetched to have a room like that looks that that decrepit after four years. If if you've ever talked to, or if you've ever been to um, uh, a, a college kid's um, dorm, <laughs> or or house, or anything of the sort. <laughs> 
after four years of a college kid living in that same dorm or that same house or that same room, it would probably look very similar. That's that is yeah. very very true. That I, I there was that was where all the collegiate in-gen interns worked. Yeah, and actually, that was the state it was before they left. Yeah, like well, it's doesn't matter anyways. Yeah, yeah. So oh, so the the theory is that that's how it was when they left. Yeah, that's where all because yeah. all the in-gen Just, interns were throwing the uh, ragers okay. once they realized that the facility was yeah the keggers. They were bringing the dinosaurs in. The Velociraptors were doing keg stands, and uh, it was it was getting wild. Um, so the Raptors, the Kegosaurus Rex, the ra- <laughs> uh, the Raptors chase our our our, our heroes. Um, there's some digging. There's some jumping. There is some gymnastics. Um, we have a hard time to believe, as does Ian Malcolm, that uh, she was cut from her gymnastics team. School cut you from the team? Uh, how old is she? How old is she? Well, I think she's 11, 12-ish. Like, for them to cut an 11 or 12-year-old from their gymnastic, like... Wow, that, that must be a good program. <laughs> Isn't it a participation sport? Yeah, like it's that? very much if you can pay for the mat time, you're allowed to participate, from my limited knowledge. Ruthless. It's it, she must be at like the best program in California. I don't know. Yeah, she was like hopping around. I I Mike and I do think th- that she actually lied, and that was a an a option. Like she was using that to kind of get back at Jeff Goldblum's character as Ian Malcolm because man, she really brought the house down. Maybe what she needs is Raptors at her um at her practices. And if or or and the, if the Raptors are there, it'll help her improve her her quality of film. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes... Here's the moral decay happening, guys. It's happening right here. We're we're trying to justify how to bring the Raptors to civilization. <laughs> See, and... We're doing it. They're in gen. They really can. Uh, they really can sink in. Um, as we are leaving, they get on the chopper and. Um, we see the, the InGen sign, which is interesting because there's a lot of InGen branding in this one compared to the first one. InGen is very prevalent. But the InGen sign, um, it says InGen, and here's their slogan. You ready? We make your future. We make your future is InGen's slogan. Um, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, by engineering the past. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. but, but the future is not bright for InGen. Um, they do, uh, they do get the T-Rex, um, thanks to our gentleman hunter who shoots it. Um, he has a pretty clear shot. Uh, <laughs> he really takes his time with that shot. Uh, he gets the T-Rex, but he has regret, um, because his buddy RJ didn't make it. Want to know why RJ didn't make it? He went into the long grass. <laughs> he went into the long grass. RJ didn't follow his own his own rule. You probably saved Ingen. We lost everything we came after on this trip, but this animal and its infant are going to single-handedly bail us out. Congratulations. You've got your trophy! Buck only! But it's alive! And everyone on the planet is going to line up to appreciate it and everything you've done for us. What's the matter? He didn't make it. RJ. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Really? I am. You know, I remember the people that helped me, Roland. There's a job for you at the park in San Diego if you want it. No, thank you. I believe I've spent enough time in the company of death. So, Greg, uh, obviously we have the scene where the boat rams the uh, docks a la Speed 2. Um, but the real question we have is they investigate the boat. They're walking through the boat. There is limbs uh, attached to the yeah. steering wheel. Yep. There's body parts everywhere. Yeah. Um, the T-Rex is still in the That's right. in, in the hold. Trying to break out. Trying to break out. It breaks right. out. Um, and chaos ensues in San Diego. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Here's the real question is, how did all the crewmen get killed if the T-Rex was in the hold? I had the same question, and I, and help me here, Mike. Help me here. I'm gonna how try. Did, how did the how did the T Rex kill all the crewmen, but yet the boat the boat was able to navigate itself directly into the dock? Directly into the dock. Yeah, um, it it's inexplainable. It's the biggest plot hole in the movie <laughs> because conceivably the T Rex would have had to have um, rammed out. Like, uh, like, like, opened the gate, um, or they they left it open, which seems odd. Party um, with the T Rex attacked all the crew members, and then also stuck its head into the um, the like the main ca- captain's quarters, um, eating the captain as he's driving the boat, but pulled out subtly enough to not break any any windows, and right. then go back into the hold where they shut it. That's how. I mean, it, that's how. It, my theory. Here's my theory. I talked about well, hold that. On. So before you go into your theory, okay, okay. it's important to point out that um, only a couple scenes later, or maybe even a couple moments later, um, the theory of there being a Velociraptor or a baby T Rex or something else on the on the boat is completely ruled out because they because they interview somebody and they say no it was just the t-rex on the boat there were no other animals the other animals are transported by plane or the baby yeah, was the transported baby was by plane and is by that plane. The, is that the new site right so, so there's it's no other just dinosaurs. the t-rex and the crew members now my theory the t-rex caused so much fear in the crew member that one crew member saw this opportunity to achieve their lifelong dream as a serial killer and murdered the crew yep and blamed it on the t-rex there is a serial killer loose on the boat and murdered the crew and that is my theory yep yeah i i don't think that there's a better way to explain it i can't think of a better way i think it's a whole other subplot i think they were gonna maybe do a sub series launched on this serial killer and its connection with the t-rex so Universal is owned by NBC, Comcast. Um, why doesn't Peacock launch a mini series or or some kind of limited series that dives into this serial killer on this ship? Yeah. And how it was able to get there, and then how the serial killer was obviously able to evade. Well, we know why he was able to evade everyone because everyone was pointing the finger at the T Rex. Right. Obviously. So, brilliant brilliant series i think it's, brilliant. A, it's a great and, and you could even put a twist on it like this serial killer is an environmentalist and the serial killer didn't want this t-rex to come to the mainland so it's en- enacting revenge on the crew 
Uh, you and, know, again, it, it goes to it goes to the moral lines that you draw. Like, I, you know, we we need to protect Mother Earth, but I am totally fine with killing twenty <laughs> crew members on this ship, as long as we protect the Earth. As long as we protect the Earth, it does not matter. Um, moving on to the destruction of San Diego, unfortunately, you know, I thought San Diego property values were high, but after this, man, um, it, it would take a hit. Uh, there is a scene uh, in all the ensued chaos, the car wrecks, the um, destroyed um, back patio wall of the suburban um, family. Um, there's an attack on the blockbuster. We see three signs. We see... Arnold Schwarzenegger in King Lear. We see a Robin Williams in a movie called Jack in the... And we couldn't figure it out. And then we see another poster for a movie that's called Tsunami Sunrise with Tom Hanks. Tsunami Surprise. Or Tsunami Surprise with Tom Hanks. None which I believe are real movies. Let, let's... Can we, can we list that again? And, and uh, then... All acknowledge which movies we would want to go see in 1997. <laughs> so 1997, these are all. It could be in 1996, but it's in the blockbusters. So you think about it. It's a, but it probably in the 97 era. Uh, King Lear starring starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, Tom Hanks in the film Tsunami Surprise or Tsunami Sunrise. <laughs> Tsunami Surprise. And Robin Williams, and it looks like a family film called Jack in the Blank. We thought it might have been Beanstalk, but we don't know. Yeah. I can tell you right now, I want to see all three. Um, but uh, the Robin Williams movie is the one that I'm probably going to see like on FX, like 10 years after it comes out. The, yeah. the Tom Hanks movie is probably like what I will like go and see in theaters like on opening weekend because it's Tom Hanks and that's like my guy. But the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is the movie that I will refuse to see until Luke, you see it and say, it's so bad. It's so good. And that's what I'll, that's- it, it, this is, I want this movie made. I want to see Arnold Schwarzenegger reciting Shakespeare in a live action film. I would pay so much money. There's a lot of movies that are hitting streaming services with the 1999 price tag because you get like you get so many days to stream it or whatever. I would pay 1999 for a one-time movie ticket to see that movie. King Lear, yeah, starting Arnold Schwarzenegger in King Lear. Wow. Uh, So the T Rex um, goes into this suburban um, backyard, destroys this beautiful wall that I'm sure the dad is very upset that was ruined. He just finished that the he week before. He just finished that the week before. The pool's all is all set up. It's gorgeous, and the dinosaur ruins it. Um, this is kind of another one of my points that it's very much in the slasher genre because it's the whole idea of now this dinosaur is going in the suburbia, like suburbia. It's sneaking around it's in the wrecking our neighborhoods. And if you listened to episode one, which I hope you did, uh, I do believe that uh, T Rexes have the ability to sneak and shimmy. Sneak and shimmy. Uh, so that it makes sense that they would be able to sneak in the backyard of a suburban San Diego family. Uh, love the kid just going to his parents and saying, there's a T-Rex in the backyard. And for <laughs> once, he's right. Wait, was it? what was the name of the dog? Does it say on the doghouse? I bet you it was Rex. Rex. It has to be Rex. <laughs> so, so funny. Um, 
Let's get to the final parts of this movie, and then we'll do a little wrap-up because we're, we're just flying through this. Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum, as Ian and Malcolm, they trap... They get the baby dinosaur. They're driving around in that beautiful Pontiac, and they put the baby back into the ship. The T-Rex, the parent T-Rex comes. Um, they eat the bad guy. They close the hold, and the ship is sent back. We don't know where, but it has a full convoy of the United States Navy. Where were they when the T-Rex first got there is all I want to say. And are they going to be murdered by the same person? <laughs> yeah. My whole thing is like the serial killer is on the boat and slowly murders everybody on every Navy ship. I I would like to I would like to address that point, but I also want to address the point of and and this is a genuine question, Mike. I'm going to ask it, direct it to you, our our, our very knowledgeable host. Uh, would a T Rex actually eat a human being? So that's a, would that even be in their appetite? Uh, geez, I don't know because uh, it, it's a good it's a good question. There's a um, there's a portion there's a part of the movie early on. Not early on, but after the after um, Toby from the from the West, West Wing, Wing dies, uh, they are the the bad guys are trying to. I don't even know all these characters' names. So they're trying to. There's they're, so many. Of they're them. trying to. They're like they're gonna go hunt this T Rex, right? Like, well, the T Rex isn't going to hunt right now because it just fed, and it references that they just ate this human. And he assumes that they would like it. I don't know, Greg. It's a really good question. I don't know if a T-Rex would even care. I I think more than anything, it's willing to defend. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, but it doesn't, I mean, any large beast, even not like, like, let's say a lion or like a tiger or something like that would want to defend itself against a human. However, a tiger would never want to eat a human. A, a bear would never want to eat a human. So I'm just I'm curious, I guess, to like what the appetite of a Tyrannosaurus Rex would be to not I mean, to want to wanna go so far as to not just defend itself by dismembering a human, but to also continually ingest a human is just fascinating <laughs> to me. It also is fascinating to me when you think of the of, of, of this small inaccuracy in all of the Jurassic Park films. I will point out that and, and they've noted this that you know, dinosaurs actually have feathers. And if you ever look up like a more, a more like 2018 plus kind of historical uh, uh, design or historical view of dinosaurs, they just look like giant birds. It was just fascinating to me to think of a giant bird eating a human. It's like, <laughs> I, I, I like that. It sounds like it's, that's like what the new movie could be. Yeah. But I think you, you make up a great point in asking that greg because i goes back to the argument that the t-rex is almost the hero of the franchise and mm. the t-rex is really kills the bad guys kills the bad humans and ends is really the whole it, it kind of like saves the day almost in some ways in this one it's a little bit more of a stretch but in some ways they do they kill the evil head of the corporation they save their young, their family, which is what Jeff Goldblum is. That's his whole motivation is to save his family. Same as the T-Rex. They're both trying to do the same thing. So again, it's maybe not even that they like, why would they eat a human? It's that they are the heroes almost of the story. And they end yeah. up being just convoyed by the Navy. So, I mean, 
into the sunrise, you know, into the sunset. Kind of an ending. Uh, any thoughts on the last parts of the movie before I get wrap up with kind of our final two questions, gentlemen? Uh, for it to end with, with a human just being just dismembered and eaten alive and then for them to close the cage on it is just, it's just eerily kind of, um, I don't know, it, 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 it just, to me, it's unfulfilling. I yeah. was unfulfilled by the ending. Yeah, it's you know? it's pretty dark and ominous, and then they have um, they have the the kind of the whole, the scene of the the navy escorting the ship, and Hammond comes on on CNN and kind of gives his spiel about life finds a way. Um, but again, it is a dark kind of ending to the film because our heroes win, but like the like you said, one of the last scenes is a human just getting destroyed by a baby dinosaur. And I love the point that John Hammond makes at the end there with life. I, f- I forgot that, and I'm, I'm glad you said it. Life finds a way. Because this is an interesting point. I, I don't think it's true. I don't think that life finds a way. I think that genetically modified beasts find a way <laughs> to, to like terrorize the, the environment that they were thrown in unnaturally. Yeah, but like, life finds a way is a ridiculous it's <laughs> it's so funny because he steals that he and he mentions it in the first couple scenes with with Ian Malcolm. He steals that line from Ian Malcolm. Ian Malcolm says it as a warning to yes. to to Hammond, and Hammond in his Hammondy way propagates that phrase and uses it as like the tagline to his like mission to preserve these animals. I think you summed it up best, Greg, with that. But it. But it, but it also it also goes to the point of like the the whole series the whole franchise continues to miss this very important point that like it is not life that is finding a way it is humans who continue to screw everything up finding a way to continue to screw everything up it is your fault it is our fault that we continue to let this happen life doesn't just find a way a, a dinosaur did not just wake up in 1996 and <laughs> you know what I mean? it's just an interesting point that like even us even like humans like Steven Spielberg who can create this film can think that the moral like the moral arc and like the, the the moral theory of this film could be that like nature is just nature and and it just finds a way and it just lives and we just need to let it live when in reality people are the problem it is always people to blame throughout this people are the antagonists and it is, and that's why it's so culturally relevant to today, because it's it's the irony of us continuing to blame nature or continuing to just think that it's just nature that does these things instead of looking inward into like this isn't nature, like this is literally not natural. We created this. Is fascinating. Oh, wow, that was beautiful. I think that's a great summation of the franchise, the film, and why we're on this journey. All right, going back to my original two questions, and uh, we'll wrap this up. Uh, where does the Lost World suffer from sequelitis, if it does? And is the main reason this movie suffers or has uh, challenges or things that are rough about it because it's just the predecessor or is it something deeper? Your thoughts, gentlemen. I think it suffers from sequelitis in that there's like, I, f- I feel like it could have ended two things either it could have ended and never gone back to san diego and i think that would have been fine 
or the San Diego bit should have been brought earlier. And the movie didn't, I, I actually think the movie's a little bit too long. I mean, it's not long by, by 2021 standards. Like it's two hours and nine minutes. It's not really that long anymore, but I still watch it and think like, okay, right before they go to San Diego, I always feel like, okay, it's time for this movie to be yeah, over. Yeah. 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 Greg, what were your thoughts on sequelitis and if if there's some big gaps in this movie or was it just suffering from its own predecessor? So I, I didn't know that the term sequelitis, so I had to look it up. And tvtropes.org, thank God that exists. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> tells me that as the number of films in the series grows, the probability that the latest entry will be terrible increases geometrically. And they list a, uh, a little... Uh, a, a little diagram here with the Santa Claus one having an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, the Santa Claus two having a 55%, and then the Santa Claus three having a 15%. Whoa, huge controversy. The Santa Claus two is by far the best Santa Claus. What? I will I will agree with you with that point, but Rotten Tomatoes does not like, which is, I think, uh, the oh. point of like what sequelitis is, is that like critics... And yeah. then maybe the general consumer or the general viewer does not think that they don't like sequels. Average, they do not think that that sequel is as good as the original. Um, I will note that Toy Story is 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 an exception to I think this rule. All rules. Yeah. All rules. <laughs> I think that it does suffer from sequelitis. I I think that they tried to do, they 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 went away from. They went away from, um, I think, the, gr the the greatness of the film, the greatness of the original film, in that they tried to create this other narrative, and and they tried to create this other narrative with the antagonist, again, in my mind, still being the same, right? Like the antagonist to the first story was capitalism, and and greed, and John Hammond was Ludlow this time. And is that what you, is that? Yeah. His, yeah. yeah. John, John Hammond was Ludlow and they just basically. And, 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 and Malcolm says it at the end of the movie. He says, now, now you're Hammond at the end of yes, the movie. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was his line. And it, it, and I'm glad he said that because it, it, it just wasn't super innovative. Yeah. That, that was the problem is that you weren't super innovative and to take from, take a to take a line or to, to take a theme from the a, a film that did not suffer from um sequelitis toy story 2 one of the greatest films ever made toy story 2 was a completely different film and told a completely different story and had a completely different um message to it this film just had the same exact message and you're still trying to figure out why don't these people understand do not touch dinosaurs did you not figure that out in the first film it was really evident yeah really really evident and goldblum's uh, character as ian malcolm is saying it over and over again and i think this is going to be a, i'm glad you brought up this theme greg because i think it's one that is continuous in this entire franchise is hey don't mess with the dinosaurs and then they do which is hard because that's the whole point of the movie sometimes what Oh, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to ask, what was your second question? I, I forgot it. It's it's in it's the same vein. Is this 
is this really suffer 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 from sequelitis or is it just because it's the second Jurassic Park movie? Is that the bigger issue? Is it not that it's a great movie standalone, or is it is it just because it's the second Jurassic Park movie? I mean, I I, I think it's yeah, I think they're both. I, I I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it it's <laughs> when you say that it's the second Jurassic Park movie. Again, we only think of the Jurassic Park franchise because uh, it is is a critique of like, like, of it, it's it's essentially a capitalist critique, right? Yeah. The entire franchise. So when you say that, does it fail because it is just the second film in the Jurassic Park series? Yeah, inevitably that's what it is, because it doesn't stray away from being anything else but the original intent and the original message that the first film already told us and already drove home that apparently these men cannot <laughs> fathom to understand for four to five more films. <laughs> no, but they, Hey, InGen's got to, you know, they got to recoup their losses. They're, they're going to, they're, and that's the only assets they have apparently besides tents. Well, I thank you. Thank you both for, for answering that. I think you're spot on that there. It's a little bit of both. Um, it's interesting in this uh, E behind the scenes doc, uh, the writer kind of talks about this, the lost world being a companion piece to the first movie. I think the two movies bookend each other really well. And if, uh, if there was going to be a third one, somebody would have to have a big idea first, but who knows? Maybe the dinosaurs run for elective office. Here's kind of my final thoughts. It does suffer, suffer from sequelitis because it's bigger, it's louder, it's more of the same, which is a very much big budget sequel thing that just happens. And it's even Spielberg is not immune to it. The thing that I do love about The Lost World is it gives us more of, I think, the best character, Ian Malcolm, and gives him a new dynamic. That's one thing that they changed. They really leaned into a new aspect of who Ian Malcolm is. Um, and we're able to flesh out that character even more. I think it's really the last time for me, I, I, we'll see as we go on this journey where the main human protagonist is really someone who I love and hold on to. It lessens and lessens as the franchise continues. You don't really have that key person that you really love and are rooting for. Yeah, I think I would I think I would save the criticism of I'm not trying to say that you were really criticizing Spielberg on this, but <clears throat> even the third movie, like saying that, like you know, he's not immune to this money grab kind of thing. I think it's less about him and more about the fact that he owns a production company. Yeah, um, and he just needs revenue streams because he's not really tied to the third movie. He's not the director. He's no. an executive producer, but you know, I could be an executive producer for that movie. So, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I guess to me, like he he's a a director or a personality in Hollywood who does it right where, yeah, sure. They see the revenue stream and they run a business so they need to, to do yeah. it, but he's not going to spend his time focusing on a project he knows isn't going to be very good. And which is like, he did this because I think the source material was there. Yep. He wanted to have a little bit of control if they would do it again. Again, also the technology having ILM involved, being able to be kind of on the front end of what you could do from a movie I think Spielberg wanted to be involved in it. And this movie probably definitely was a part of the, the evolution of ILM. We think of the movies that came after it. Um, episode one, the Phantom Menace, um, a lot of movies that came after it that like really doubled down on the CGI. Um, I feel like the lost world kind of continued the evolution of CGI and, and Spielberg was a part of it. Um, but overall I did love this movie and I did enjoy it. And I thought it was a fun ride. 
there, there was some parts that I think dragged down a little bit too long, but overall, I think it was a fun way to continue the story of Ian Malcolm, continue the story of this failed capitalistic project. Uh, and again, more fun and more dinosaurs is always a good thing. Last thoughts, gentlemen, as we wrap up the Lost World. I, I was just going to say, you know, you know what does not and has never suffered from sequelitis? A John Williams score. Mm, that is true. That's so true. More and more. The more you give, the better. Yeah. Yeah, Luke knows this opinion of mine, but I do think that John Williams' work with the Jurassic Park franchise is his best work. Um, Oh, Greg agrees with me. Hands down. Hands down. Hands down, that that entrance, that we all know, like, the sound of, like, the entrance into Jurassic Park that just is, is... adventurous it's mystical it's magical you can think of it and you can hear it i think that that's one of the best scores ever written wow wow i feel so vindicated in this moment. <laughs> dude i will i will just let that sit well gentlemen thanks for going on this journey greg how can people find you if they want to find you or if you want to be found or do you have anything to promote subtly i don't you know what i don't even know my twitter handle hold on <laughs> let me look <laughs> You can find him on LinkedIn at Gregory Jackson, right? And or uh, Jack underscore Greg K. I tweet a ton about um, uh, the media and entertainment and technology world coming together and also socioeconomics as well. Um, so feel free to give me a follow. Uh, thank you so much, Greg, for, for joining us. It was such a fun adventure to go to the Lost World together to experience sexy gold bloom to understand frequencies and more thanks for joining us on the show we appreciate it thanks for having me guys this was fun